and welcome back. It's episode 127 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, and we are coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, rated number one by U.S. News & World Report amongst law schools accredited in the Seychelles. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and proprietor of a series of asbestos-laden co-working spaces. We pass the savings on to you, and I'm joined, as always, by the Katy Perry and Taylor Swift of the conservative legal movement. I don't feel great about myself sometimes. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And, fellas, I'm sort of surprised that you're available and not still milling around after parties because we are recording this just on the heels of the Federalist Society's National Lawyers Convention, where I'm told, because I've never actually been invited to one of these, prices just go up every year that passes, guys, that you guys are royalty. So much so that there was a FedSoc post on Instagram the other day highlighting the opening talks for the dinner there. Two people featured therein, Mitch McConnell and Richard Epstein. No, which no, no. I, See, Rich, Richard is the real monarch of the federal I am the Dauphin. I'm the pretender to the throne. <laughs> I'm just like the guy who never – I'm the guy who's training. I'm like the – I'm the Prince Charles, and he's the Queen Elizabeth of the Federal Society Committee. Well, thank you for my 60 years of brain. No, I mean, it was a great honor to speak. I mean, the most impressive feature, of course, was that I was brief. Whether I was witty is another question, uh, but the way in which this thing had evolved is Mitch McConnell came uh, and gave a report on the judges. And I have to say, I had dinner with many of them on Wednesday night and saw many of them on Thursday and a whole variety of other times. And I'm so most impressed with them all. The good news from my point of view is that Stephen Menashe, who was with me at the Classical Liberal Institute for two years, uh, made it through the Senate and is now going to take a seat on the Second Circuit. And uh, McConnell announced that, which I thought was fine. And I chimed in on that particular point. And then for uh, the next four minutes, what I said is I'm interested in the long game. And of course, uh, we didn't talk about riparian rights, but we certainly did talk about Roman law um, as the sort of the origins of all of this. Yeah, kind. And, you, and you were held to beneath below five minutes. Yes, I always speak the time. So wait, you did four and a half minutes Something like on that. Roman riparian law. No, I didn't do the riparian law. I did what I wanted to do is to stress something about the federal society. And the, the model is, I mean, McConnell's job is to get people through the funnel. My job is to get them into the pipeline, uh, along with a lot of other people. And so I said, what happens is he can't sell anybody unless he has somebody to sell. And so I started off saying that, you know, when you want to really do this, my view is that in order to make sure that he has non-political types that he can put onto the bench, um, what you have to do is to school people in the origins of constitutionalism, natural law, law and economics, legal history, and so forth, and that Roman law is my favorite vehicle for doing that. And it just so happened that there were a large number of my Roman law students in that room, including Noel Francisco, who's the Solicitor General of the United States. He was an excellent Roman law student. Eric Murphy was there, and he's just a 
appointed to the Sixth Circuit, and he's an excellent student. Martha Packold wasn't there, but she's just been appointed in the um, a Northern District of Illinois. And so I, I gave a little Jesus, bit of Jesus, these thought. guys are going to rise up and reinstall the empire if we don't watch They out. are going to do all that is exactly <laughs> what we're planning. We have, um, it is, I think it's, you know, it's a mission. Uh, I do not want people on the bench who essentially are going to be subject to political influences. I want people who have a deep sense of principle and who do not think that the law is hopelessly contingent and artificial and capable of infinite manipulation. And so when you start going uh, back— Good luck with that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you do have luck with it um, if you try. And we did try. We tried very hard. So at the end, you know, I didn't know how to end it. I started to twist my tongue. But uh, the last sentence I said, I think, although I've not heard it, but I think wait, I— Wait, wait, wait. You got up and you just—you were not prepared? You just started talking? No, of course I was not prepared. No. <laughs> now I really don't—now, see, I wasn't no, there. No, now I'm I really under, don't believe you were under five minutes. I was under five minutes. Because you've spent more than five minutes describing the five minutes. Well, well that's because I have to go through all the— angst that it takes to get to the five minute. But no, you had one theme, the sort of long run, short run. And then I talked about the various ways. And in the end, I wasn't quite what sure what to say. So I think I said something like, Senator McConnell, you ain't nothing without us. <laughs> did you really say that? I think uh, I said that, but I'm not sure. That. But if I was certainly thinking, but I believe I said that. Oh, um, okay. I think it's All actually right. true. Um, so, I mean, that, years, that, that are, seat for Richard in the Seventh Circuit in Chicago just went poof up and yeah. that seat for the Seventh. Uh, look, when I wrote my article on the Yellow Dog contract, well, no, 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 we can't do Richard. <laughs> That's when my seat we went can't poof. Go back. Everywhere. We can't go back to the we Yellow Dog contract. All these, all these years, our listeners not not realizing that this whole Roman law thing was a long con for you to restructure the entire federal judiciary. It's good. I'm glad to see it coming it, it to fruition. Mean, and you know, it's actually right. taking hold. So the place that we've obviously got to begin on this episode is the impeachment hearing. So let, let me start here. There has been a noticeable rhetorical shift amongst Democrats this week insofar as they have, for the most part, stopped using the phrase quid pro quo and started referring to the president as having solicited bribery. The logic here being that he was trying to extract the investigation he wanted from the Ukrainians as a condition of releasing the aid and giving President Zelensky the White House visit he wanted. And Nancy Pelosi explicitly made a point of noting this week that bribery is in the Constitution attached to the impeachment proceeding. So, John, uh, let's just sort of stipulate uh, arguendo. The, the facts of this case look the way that the Democrats say they do, even under those circumstances. Is bribery the right legal category to place that in? It's interesting. I'm not sure whether this is bribery under the impeachment clause. It's interesting. Treason, It's the you know, as you know, the impeachment clause says you can be impeached and removed for treason, bribery, and then other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason is defined in the Constitution. Bribery is not defined in the Constitution. And then certainly other high crimes and misdemeanors aren't defined. So we're not really sure what... Uh, impeachment bribery uh, looks like. You, you could say, well, maybe it's just the same kind of bribery that would uh, exist already in the federal criminal code. But I think that can't be right. And this is why. Because 
We bribe people all the time. That's what the CIA does. We don't go around, right? If you're a CIA agent, you give money to people in foreign governments to betray their country and do stuff for us. To be, We've been bribing people for, you know, since the end of World War II, if not before. We were bribing people during the Civil War. Probably bribe people during the Revolutionary War. On and on. So it can't be the case, it seems to me, that one could just say, oh, Trump gave something to someone or offered them something. It's automatically bribery. And he's impeached because then we would be impeaching. We would be impeaching every CIA director we've ever had. Uh, can't, and the thing about it, we also make payments sometimes and deals with confidential informants and plea bargains. So I think that can't be right. The Democrats' argument is way too broad. So the question is: This is kind of bribery that the framers were thinking of when they wrote the impeachment clause. And so when I looked at the original material, the only example they really talked about was when. Louis XIV, the king of France, uh, Louis XIV, Richard will correct me on my French pronunciation, was Louis XV, yeah. He bribed the king of England. Uh, He put him on the retainer, he was on a retainer basically, and he paid the king of England a certain amount of money every year to make sure that England would not send troops into the battles that France was waging on the continent with other European powers. That was the example repeated over and over again. And so this is why I've been thinking, look, if there was a quid pro quo, it's the kind of subject matter that the framers were worried about, you know, engaged in some kind of, uh, you know, exchange of benefits where the president was getting something of personal benefit in exchange for doing something, abusing their power or so on. But this case, the facts that the Democrats have put forward seem so marginal compared to the examples that the founders were worried about. It just seems to me the facts don't don't rise yet to the level of a bribery or high crime and misdemeanor. Look, I have the following observation. This is one of the great semantic triumphs of Western civilization. Uh, The definition of bribery is what you do is you make a quid pro quo situation, uh, but every contract has a quid pro quo. They are the definitions of it. And the quid pro quo has to be where you give something, usually money or tangible services of some kind of other, not vague promises, in exchange for an act which is in breach of the public trust. And I have no idea of why it is that that definition seems to work better than the old quid pro quo stuff if they're still relying on the phone call that was made between Trump and Zelensky in July I think it's a dead loser for any particular kind of theory I think what really happened under these circumstances is that they uh, did a little polling and they realized that bribery has an unveilingly negative response whereas quid pro quo that's Latin and nobody's quite sure what it means anyhow so they decided to switch the argument in that particular direction um, but they still don't have anything that kind of looks remotely uh, like a a, a proof. If you want to think of what bribery looks like in the kinds of cases we have, let me just give one example. There was a well-known and at one time thought to be distinguished judge named Sherman Manton, who was on the Second Circuit. And what he did is he took bribes from particular people in order to vote their way when it came to decisions. That is, he took money from them. And the defense that he gave after he was removed from office and punished was that he only took bribes from the person he thought ought to win anyhow, um, which I don't think is going to be quite enough to carry the day. 
And so I think, in effect, what happens is they're just trying to expand a series of de- definitions beyond recognition in order to get him. And, you know, Trump, when he starts to say lunatic things, which he does periodically, maybe daily, um, you always know that they're lunacy. The point, the difference between them and the Democrats, uh, Ms. Pelosi and, and Mr. Schiff, is they actually are trying to sound Solomonic, trying to sound learned, trying to sound as if they actually know something about this subject. They're trying to be people of great sobriety, balance, and caution. Uh, but in many ways, they're much worse than Trump is, because with Trump, you know it's a transparent game. Uh, with them, they are basically trying to pretend uh, to be serious and detached intellectuals when they've been gunning for this guy from the day in which he was elected. I don't think it's any secret that the Democrats think that he's utterly unfit for office. They think that their candidate, Hillary Clinton, was far better. Uh, they are appalled at the fact that he managed to outfox her in every relevant decision when it came to winning the election in 2016. They tried with Russia. Uh, it was always the opinion that the Mueller hearing was going to be a complete bust. I had no idea how bad it was. But the moment that thing ends, then we start up with the Ukraine. Uh, this may have been a misjudgment. I certainly don't want to defend Trump on anything like that. But to think that this is an impeachable offense based upon that transcript or all the comments that people have put upon this is simply to degrade the process of impeachment into something where it becomes just a pure political kind of mechanism. It's a really, I think, a very, very bad situation. The Democrats are clearly trying to go for bribery. They're clearly trying to go for obstruction of justice, both kind of murky offenses. I don't think they're actually going for something that would be serious if, in fact, it was done. This is not, for example, firing uh, the Secretary of War, which is the situation that you had with the um, impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It's not even Clinton lying under oath. I don't think he should have ever been made to testify. And it's certainly not uh, Richard Nixon making a long-term concealment, a cover-up of some very serious offenses, predicate offenses like the Watergate break-ins, of which there is no parallel here. Well, let's review what we learned this week. So we had testimony uh, before Congress from George Kent at the State Department, Bill Taylor, who was the top diplomat in Ukraine, and Marie Ivanovich, who used to be the ambassador in Ukraine. Big takeaways, apart from the fact that someone needs to change the password on the president's phone, is that the president seemed pretty obsessed with getting this investigation open in Ukraine, one. And two, Rudy Giuliani was essentially running his own sort of parallel foreign policy operation over there. If those things are true, John, to what degree, if at all, should they influence our judgment about impeachment as a remedy? So I I take as true what the career foreign service officers were saying during the hearings. Uh, but there's a lot of factual holes there that, again, go with that there's not enough evidence yet, uh, if ever there will be, because, uh, for example, uh, most of them said, actually, it's interesting, they, the, the questioning of Ambassador Yovanovitch was very interesting because one of the congressmen said, did you see any bribery? Do you have any information a crime was committed? And she actually said, uh, by, I mean, by the president, she actually said no. Uh, to both questions. The the problem is, if there was bribery, even if there was a quid pro quo, it's not clear there has been. All the people who testified uh, were testifying that someone else told them there was a quid pro quo. They never heard anyone directly do that. In fact, I think the key person, and this is in the hearings coming up this week, is Ambassador Sondland, who was a big campaign donor. Now he's the ambassador to the EU. The Democrats claim that he 
and Energy Secretary Rick Perry and then Rudy Giuliani were kind of running this off the books foreign policy towards Ukraine. Uh, if that's true, he's the guy who would be the one to say, oh, the president told me we are going to hold up aid, or I was ordered to tell the Ukrainians we are holding up aid until they launch this investigation, into the, until the Ukrainians launch this investigation into the Bidens. So I still think there are facts to ferret out. Now, let me also add just one thing about how peculiar this is. So I think the Democrats actually, from if I was one, if I were taking their side in this, I think they have terribly mismanaged the investigation because you would not have, you should never have put on these public hearings until you knew whether you actually had someone who had met directly with the president and heard this demand for investigations in exchange for foreign assistance and military aid from the man's own mouth or on the phone or directly in email. But to have it all just be secondhand, and that's basically what we knew two, three weeks ago, the ball really didn't move forward this week on impeachment in a substantive way. Maybe it did in a kind of, I don't know, PR way, because people for the first time could see the testimony. I think the witnesses were fairly credible. Um, I think Republicans actually didn't do that good a job uh, cross-examining them for the most part. But the ball didn't move forward in terms of what facts and information we know about whether this is really impeachable and impeach rises to a level of impeachable offense. So the the last yeah. thing I'll ask you guys on, on this, and I'll start with you on this, Richard, because ah. this is this is a point of law, but it's almost lost in all the drama here. So if we rewind to the summer. Congress authorizes this aid money to Ukraine and the administration is holding it. There's apparently a dispute at that point between OMB and the State Department. And there's a version of this with the Pentagon, too, with states saying, hey, you don't have the legal authority to hold this money up. And the story, as it was reported by Bloomberg, is that it was John Bolton who finally said, you know what, just spend the money. We're not waiting on him. So, Richard, what kind of power does the administration rightly have in a situation like that? Congress has appropriated the money to hold it up. Look, this has been one of these constant problems. Clearly, there are the words that Congress shall do this, and they've made the authorization. Uh, but what happens is there's always got to be a bit of democratic or diplomatic discretion. For example, something happens in the interim between the time in which this authorization is made and the time at which it has to be transferred. And somebody's going to say, well, we're not sure that this is the right thing to do because of its symbolic effect. We're not sure because there seems to be a change in government policy. We're not sure because there's some revelation of what has happened with the Soviets or the Iranians or anybody else who might be involved in the area. And so I think, in fact, this is always understood to be a very potent and very difficult kind of gray area. And remember, Obama was authorized in the same way to make exactly the same kind of shipments, and he declined to do so because he thought that it might inflame the Soviets under circumstances were inappropriate. And, you know, to the extent that Trump was following in Obama's footsteps, you know, that hardly sounds like an impeachable offense. Then the whole thing starts to get untangled. But, you know, I've looked at the transcript like everybody else, and as best I can tell, it was as 
Giuliani described it in a surprisingly good editorial that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, um, that this was a courtesy call. This was not a system of threats. You've got 20 people in the room. That's not the time we try to put pressure on anybody. And I don't think it's a doctor transcript because the transcript wasn't prepared by a Trump aide. It was prepared by a bunch of civil servants, and there were too many people who knew what was going on. So the transcript itself seems to be relatively innocent. Uh, the only way it gets ominous is because of the double hearsay by the uh, grand whistleblower, whose name is still not uh, disclosed. And now what we have is three other people coming forward and saying that they heard more or less the same kind of thing. Well, rumors are not the basis by which you can convict. And one of the things that we have to do is to understand that most of the impeachments that we've ever had have actually had an uncontested fact record. There was nobody in the Nixon cases who were going to say that he did not hold this stuff up. And so it was with respect to Clinton and with Andrew Johnson before him. But here they huge questions with respect to credibility. We don't even know when you have an impeachment who decides what evidence is going to be admissible. Is it going to be the chief justice who presides? Is there going to be some parliamentarian, parliamentarian who owns this? Is there going to have to be a vote of the Senate itself? My own view about this is if you have a hearing as grave as an impeachment trial, all the standard protections against um, the use of hearsay in hearings, I think really have to be scrupulously observed. Those are error reduction rules, and I think the last thing you want to do is to waive them under these circumstances. So I could easily see the House impeaching, and McConnell, who's a pretty shrewd operator, running the sentence saying, look, I've gone through this stuff, and unless you could give me stuff which meets the standards for admissibility in an ordinary criminal trial, I don't want to hear them. Now, this is not in the Constitution as such. There are protections in the Sixth Amendment about criminal prosecutions, but the impeachment is sort of independent, and the Sixth Amendment is clearly having to do with private parties who are going to be tried in state court or in federal court. Remember, at the time that the Constitution was adopted, there was no constitutional obligation to create trial courts in the federal system. You could use state courts for federal cases. So I think, in effect, that what happened is the Democrats first have to be able to get past the admissibility barrier. And if they don't get past it, I think what's going to happen is uh, they are not going to be allowed to put their witnesses on if they say what somebody else says. Now, the question is, do they have to put on uh, the fellow who is the whistleblower? Uh, They've kept it secret. My view is if they never use him to testify, they may not have to disclose it to the public. But I don't have quite the same view as to whether they could keep that concealed from the Republicans who may have a very strong interest to interview him to figure out what it is that he told, where it is that he learned these things, whether or not his story was concordant with those of other people, whether he spoke to other people who were not involved in his report, who gave contrary information. I do think that an in-camera interview that they have with him uh, would, in fact, be appropriate under these circumstances. So I think John is right that it got off to a bad start. I mean, the headlines were kind of juicy, at least in the New York Times, uh, but I don't think think that there's anything here. And I refuse to watch the hearings, by the way, so long as they're based on hearsay. So I'm doing it on the basis of very reliable hearsay, that is newspaper reports. Um, I think, in effect, that so far they are basically back at ground zero. They're using artificial definitions of what counts as bribery, concealing its close relationship to the quid pro quo, and they're relying on very stale evidence. And the motivation side has to be there. Even though they purport to uphold the rule of law, these are the same guys who are basically 
grasping for blood, trying to basically kill uh, the president um, before the Ukraine began. And if this thing passes and they have any time, they'll look for something else to take after him. The motive is not strictly relevant, but it certainly requires you to look at the evidence that they present with a somewhat skeptical eye. Before we move on from this, John, I just want to get you on one of the things that Richard mentioned there towards the end. Uh, What do you make of the Republican strategy here? Because the GOP submitted their list of witnesses that they were requesting for the hearings, and that list did include the whistleblower. Um, It also included Hunter Biden. Now, obviously, some of that is politics, but let's put that aside for a moment. As a matter of trying to get this process right— is it, in fact, necessary to hear from one or both of those people? Yeah, first, the uh, this process has been conducted very differently than in the past because it hasn't allowed the minority to call witnesses of their own and to pursue their own lines of inquiry. As Richard said, and I've said before, the Constitution doesn't require it. The Constitution gives the House the right to make up its own rules on impeachment. It gives the Senate the right to, to make its own rules on the trial. But I think uh, because uh, well, two things. Think I think one because the evidence and the counter arguments will never be heard in the Senate. It, this House is kind of the only chance. And then second, I think it is fair because impeachment is a mixture of law and politics to look at the origins of the impeachment inquiry to be able to look and ask the questions of the whistleblower and to say, did you? coordinate your complaint? Did you talk to people on Schiff's staff? I mean, that's the Republican line. I don't know whether it's true or not because they haven't been able to pursue it, and so we don't know. Um, You know, what, you know, is this, you know, because uh, if Richard's right, and this is just yet another effort to bring down Trump using, you know, whatever, whatever sticks available to beat the dog, then you wouldn't be surprised if it were something that was kind of manufactured the way the original claims that led to the Mueller investigation were. So I have an idea about how to fix this, which hasn't really been mentioned, which is uh, if the House persists on impeachment and doesn't give the Republicans a chance to explore these avenues that you just mentioned, Troy, I think the Senate could do it, but not in the trial. If I were uh, Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, you could just start normal oversight hearings. They don't have to be impeachment trial hearings, just normal oversight hearings and call the whistleblower, call the same witnesses that are being brought forward in the Senate, in the House impeachment procedures. Bring Call Hunter Biden. You could call Joe Biden, too. I bet Joe wouldn't mind a chance to appear before his former colleagues in the Senate. And figure out whether this – that I don't think it has to just do with the trial. You could just say you are legitimate – the Senate is legitimately looking at whether uh, there has been abuse of the bureaucracy uh, and uh, improper contacts between the House and the Foreign Service and the CIA and so on, not just you know waiting until the House sends over this report, which, Rich, as Richard says, could well just be filled with hearsay, with never any chance to test the credibility of any of these witnesses or to bring forward your own uh, witnesses. So I hope the Senate thinks about that and actually does it. All right, gentlemen. So one probably remaining bit of Trump controversy before we move on to some other things. We are going to find out soon whether the Supreme Court is going to hear an appeal from the president on the Second Circuit's decision that he has to turn over eight years of his tax records to the Manhattan DA. This is part of the investigation into the Stormy Daniels hush money payments. (laughs) 
Now, this, by the way, is distinct, we should note, but obviously related to the House's attempt to get Trump's tax records. That's with mm-hmm. the D.C. circuit right now. Yeah. And the president's argument here is that as a sitting president, he should be immune not just to indictment, but to any kind of criminal investigation. And the chief judge on the Second Circuit said, in essence, look, presidents and presidential candidates release their financial records all the time. You didn't, but that's sort of proof that this isn't a terrible imposition upon your ability to do your job. Uh, Richard, how strong is that case and how strong is the president's case here? Look, I I have been consistently pro-administration and pro-president on all of these things. Uh, I go right back to the original time when the question was whether or not Bill Clinton had to sit for a deposition, and the Supreme Court, after thinking about it, decided that he did. Um, I thought that was a dreadful mistake, and one of the things it did is he put him in a box, and then he lied, and then all of a sudden he gets an impeachment. And my view is that what you do is uh, this is a sufficient disruption for what's going on. Uh, They're obviously very very questionable motives on the other side of these cases as well. Um, If it turns out that you're trying to do this to get information, uh, you have to give me a very powerful reason why it is. If it's a criminal charge, it doesn't go through either New York or it doesn't go through D.C. It has to go through an impeachment hearing, at which point many of the evidentiary protections that are afforded the president could go. I think that when you started to look at the House, it was exactly the same thing. I'm not aware of any case in which an ordinary subpoena has been brought against the president in order to get this kind of information. And indeed, um, Justice Tatel, in his own decision, only cites one case where it was sought and it was denied. And he says, well, the decide denied in that case, but there was no blanket denial. But in this particular case, what he's trying to do is to get information about the way in which the president may have padded his assets in order to improve his tax position. Michael Cohen is the authority on all of this. You don't need this information to figure out what kind of legislation you want if you're seeking about how to prevent presidents or anybody from padding assets. They want this as an aid to the impeachment case, and I don't think that they ought to be able to get it. So my view is whether you're talking about a congressional inquiry, whether you're talking about a federal prosecution inquiry, whether you're talking about a state inquiry, what you do is you simply say, look, here's the deal. There's no testimony that you could get from the president, no documents that you can get uh, to examine. What you can do is you can insist that the documents be held um, by a neutral party so that they can't be destroyed. You can insist that the statutes of limitations have to be waived, told, as it were, until the president is out of office, at which point you can then begin these kinds of things. But otherwise, it's not only these two suits, there are many, many other suits that can be brought that way. I thought Naomi Rao in a dissent, which has been roundly criticized by all sorts of people on the left, got it right in the situation with respect to the uh, District of Columbia. I do not think under any circumstances uh, that the kinds of stuff you're going after the president, you're there. If there's a legislative purpose, there's so many other ways you could get the kind of information that the question is, why is this information particularly relevant? It isn't. And why is it that when you have thousands of other ways to investigate this, do you decide with malice of forethought to go after the president? Um, is there a valid you know, legislative purpose for getting information? There always is. But the real question is, is there a a valid legislative purpose for getting this from the president where thousands of other sources are available? And to that question, I think the answer is no. John, I mentioned that the case regarding Congress trying to get the tax returns is a little different. That's obviously partially because it's Congress, but it's also 
partially because the purported justification comes from somewhere else. There is a, a statute from 1924 that they're appealing to that, that gives certain congressional committees the authority to see anyone's tax return, um, as long as they're in closed session, I guess, if it's identifiable. And Democrats in the House say, that's it. Let's just open and shut. And Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has refused it, saying that it's a, a violation of privacy. Is the president any more or less at risk in that case than he is with the one out of Manhattan? Oh, yeah. And I actually I, I disagree a little bit with Richard on the uh, you know, the case for it under, you know, under state law. But I think the one under federal law, you look at the statute, there's no exceptions. Uh, now, the idea of it is that the Congress and the tax committees, they want to see returns to make sure that no one's getting favorable treatment, that the IRS is doing its job properly. They're supposed to keep the returns confidential. So that I think what's really going on here is that President Trump, with maybe good reason, thinks that once it's handed over, the tax returns handed over to the committee, someone's going to leak them. But there's no exceptions for the such. It doesn't require there to be any specific uh, purpose identified for any individual tax return. It's just the legislative purpose generally is to conduct oversight of the way the IRS is doing the job. I, I don't think any court case has ever upheld any resistance to the statute. There isn't any uh, privacy exception to complying with the statute. Uh, so I, I don't think Trump is going to, I just don't see how Trump's uh, going to win on that one. Now, now, the broader things, I still don't, I don't get why he's wasting so much, you know, political and personal capital to keep his tax returns concealed. I mean, they might show that he doesn't make that much money. Big deal. I mean, it's a, he's the president of the United States. He's wasting enormous amounts of time trying to keep some, uh, you know, his tax returns private when he should be spending time on much more important things. Um, I disagree with John a little bit. I agree that there's no particular statement in any of these statutes about presidential exemptions, uh, but the Constitution is lauded full with uh, privileges that are implied. In fact, none of the privileges that you commonly assert are anywhere in the text. They're all drawn as implication from structure. And I think, in effect, that the peril to the president from the distraction and the harassment and the downright abuse, the multiple cases, is true uh, no matter what the source is. And, in fact, that there are so many potential potential sources for doing this makes it much more aggravated. Uh, there is in the entire history of the Republic only one effort to do this at the uh, congressional level, and it was rebuffed. So as to think that this is an established practice, I think is just a terrible mistake. So I would, in fact, uphold the president's privileges on, on those kinds of grounds, and I would do it much more categorically than trying to examine relevance in a particular case. I would do it on essentially an executive privilege ground, saying impeachment is the only that you can go uh, while the man is still in office. And then after he's in office, uh, all the cases can be resumed if it turns out you think there's something going on. But they won't be resumed in quite the same way because nobody's going to care about humiliating an ex-president. And by the way, I, I want you to tell you, I mean, just think of it this way. I've always been curious to see what Obama's, Barack Obama's transcripts at Occidental College and at uh, Columbia College and at Yale Law and Harvard Law School have looked like. I don't think that 
there's any uh, duty on his part to disclose them. And I think that if he's prepared to keep them quiet and take the heat for it, um, that should be just fine. And the same thing I think is true with respect to Trump. I have no idea what you would find there. We already know that he's been fined for all sorts of other things and set some rather dubious enterprises. So if somebody's going to start to tell me that there's evidence of some kind of irregularity in those papers, I say, I'm sure that that's the case. But that's part of the reason why we don't want them to be examined now. It's going to compromise the opportunity of a president to work, to have the reputation sullied, and to have his depositions taken, and to essentially create a massive kind of distraction. We'll see the Supreme Court has been asked uh, uh, to give a stay with respect to the decision that was made in the D.C. Circuit. It's worth noting there was one Trump appointee that went one way, uh, but the two other judges were Democratic appointees. I don't know what it is that you want to make out of all of this. I think that there's obviously some sort of political stuff there. Uh, but my principle has been one that I've been with for a very long period of time. And if I'm talking about these principles to protect Bill Clinton. The problem is that the court rejected those arguments. I know that, Clinton but I think they were wrong. I, I don't I think, think they were wrong. No, I, you're making a reasonable argument. You know, Thomas Jefferson made that argument. I think it's just problem, a terrible uh, thing to do. No, the problem is that the court, you know, the, this is the same argument Clinton tried in Clinton versus Jones, and he lost, I think, nine to zero. And I, I know that, but I mean, this is not a bunch of guys who are very useful dealing with with civil litigation. As somebody who, from time to time, has had his deposition taken. Um, even about matters which I was not directly involved with, what you always understand is how fraught with difficulties the deposition. And as one lawyer told me when I was doing this, he says, uh, if you get 99% of the questions right and 1% of the questions wrong in answer to a deposition, you're finished. And I think it's that particular kind of dynamic that's very much at work here. So the amount of preparation that you have to do for a deposition is enormous. And the ability to make a slip is very, very high. And once you make a slip, particularly on confidentiality and so forth. If one thing comes in because you've breached the wall, everything starts to come in. Uh, these rules are not really designed, I think, to deal with presidential situations. I don't see the Supreme Court overturning Clinton. I, I don't. I mean, look, my view is they had very bad judgment on that particular case. Uh, I wish some of them had been a bit more, shall we, uh, closely attuned to litigation on the floor. I thought the, the Stevens opinion was hopelessly abstract. And in fact, the day in which it came down, I was actually speaking at the Women's Society for the University of Chicago, and that's the day I began my denunciation of that opinion. Okay, God, well, I'm consistent for the long haul. Well, one thing I can tell you for certain that Donald Trump is guilty of is hijacking this show, which puts me in a bit of a quandary because there are a couple of great, great constitutional law storylines right now that we are not going to be able to get to because of how much he's dominated our discussion here. So, jump ball, I will leave it to the two of you. Should we do Equal Rights Amendment? Should we do Faithless Electors? So I think Equal Rights Amendment. Okay. okay. So well, he does that. Um, sure. I mean, Faithless Electors. John, 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 if he wants to do this, let John right, it's answer. Okay. okay. It's okay. dead as a doornail. Well, okay. So there's two things I want to talk about here. This is a fascinating story. It's not really getting enough coverage yet. So. Long-time listeners of the program will remember that I have asked the two of you on multiple occasions about the fact that we're living in a, a fallow era of constitutional amendments. It just don't really happen anymore, except we just had legislative elections in Virginia. Democrats are taking over. And the anticipation is that this is going to make Virginia the 38th state, which is the threshold for passage, to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. 
Now, so kind of quick refresher on this. Some version of the Equal Rights Amendment has been in circulation for almost 100 years at this point. But the, the version we have now was passed by Congress in 1972. And the substantive text, there's some other procedural language in there, too, is, this is a direct quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, close quote. So, uh, John, since Richard handed it over to you to start, why don't, there's some really, really interesting procedural things here, but before we even get to that, anyone without a living memory of Betty Ford is probably at sea on this one. So were this to pass, what exactly does that language that I just read mean in practice? So this is one interesting thing about the substance. It's not clear to me whether constitutional law would change that much. Because since the time of the amendment was introduced and the law states ratified it, the Supreme Court essentially, because of Justice Ginsburg, when she was an advocate, uh, the Supreme Court has basically read sex into the 14th Amendment as if it were uh, protected on the same grounds as race. It's a, not quite allegedly in the same tier of scrutiny you know, that's reserved for race and national origin. But in application, it's pretty close. And so a lot of the arguments that people made back in the Betty Ford era, you know, the um, like the Phyllis Schlafly arguments, um, have already come to pass. So if I remember, she had argued, if this equal right amendments passes, then we're going to need to have women in the military. Well, <laughs> guess what? There are women in the military. And then I think she said, uh, and there won't be separate bathrooms by the sexes anymore. Well, guess what? <laughs> there are all these unisex bathrooms now. I, you know, I think that the court essentially added to something like the Equal Rights Amendment just through precedent. And we can argue about whether that uh, change was legitimate or not, but it happened. And I don't think anybody on the court is going to go back and say, you know, women are not actually mentioned, uh, gender is not actually mentioned uh, in the same way as race in the 14th Amendment, and the Equal Rights Amendment was rejected, so therefore we should overturn those precedents from the 70s, from the Betty Ford era. So it's not clear to me what difference Equal Rights Amendment would make anymore. Richard, um, do you think it's that benign? Nothing is benign. Uh, <laughs> what happens is you take a clause like this, which is pretty Delphic. Uh, what they clearly did is they meant to some extent to broaden protection because the 14th Amendment talks about equal protection, uh, which originally probably meant only with respect to criminal prosecutions, although it's obviously been read much more broadly since that time. But equality under law is still broader. And so what could happen is it's not that you will or will not keep sex as a suspect category or a protected category. It's that the level of scrutiny will go up. And one perfectly plausible argument could be, well, the level of scrutiny that you want is the same that you want with respect to race. Now, I regard that as madness. I mean, to uh, give you just the most obvious illustration, uh, does equal protection of law or equality under law mean that you cannot have separate men's and women's athletic teams, at which point all the teams are one sex and the women are going to basically be shut out of all position? I certainly don't hope that. And everybody who's ever con 
concerned with the way in which the athletic question has been treated under Title IX with respect to university, knows that the courts have gone back somersault to make sure that you get equal funding uh, for female and male sports, even though the revenues generated by the male sports, especially football, are far greater than those by the female sports. Um, uh, you're going to start to have only unisex bathrooms when they're widely rejected. I hope that that's not going to come to pass either, because I think it offends the customs that are desired by both men and women for what seem to me to be perfectly obvious kinds of reasons. So I don't want to put in something there, uh, which could arguably say that we go a little bit further in terms of coverage and a little bit deeper in terms of the kinds of protection we're given. I also think that, if I'm not mistaken, there was a time limitation that was built into the legislation that was proposed, which has long been inspired, and correct me, haven't yes. some states actually revoked well, their Yes, so, so this is, yes, so let me spell this out, because this is really, really interesting. Uh, Congress had set a deadline for ratification on the ERA for 1982. It had 35 states at that point, three shy of what's necessary. In just the last couple of years, it's gained Nevada, Illinois, and now everyone's hoping Virginia clinches it. But there are a bunch of questions here. One is, is the original congressional deadline binding? There's nothing in the Constitution about time frames for amendments. And in fact, the last constitutional amendment we had, the 27th, yes. was ratified in 1992. The process began on that one in 1789. Yeah, it was part of the original Bill of Rights, but not so that's, originally rejected. Right. So that's question one. Question two, if they even care to address it, can Congress just get rid of the deadline that they imposed or extend it further? And then point three, the one you were mentioning, Richard, in the years since this has been up for consideration, five of the states that voted to ratify it, it's Idaho, Kentucky, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Tennessee, have voted to rescind their ratification. So, John, I'll start with you on this. Navigate this. <laughs> yeah, this is very us. interesting. I mean, we've, I mean, this does come up from time to time, but... There are no Supreme Court cases, so we don't actually teach it in class that often. But the, I think on the, the deadline is interesting in and of itself. Um, some amendments have the deadline in the actual text. The problem, I think, with this deadline is that it's in the preamble. It's not actually got its own operative force. That's right. And so people argue whether that means it's binding. I don't think it's a problem to say Congress could send a constitutional amendment to the states that expires of its own force if enough states don't ratify it. Uh, the question here is just whether the, this the Congress really did that or not. Personally, I don't, this preamble versus operative language, uh, I don't think should make a difference. So if Congress has it in there, in the text, as it does, I think it should be operative. So uh, I think it's already uh, in a way moot uh, because it has expired. But the second interesting question, because this is one that's just I don't think the Supreme Court has really ever resolved is whether uh, a state can retract its ratification. Now, personally, I don't see why it can't. And the historical counterexample is the uh, 14th and 15th Amendments. But those are really unusual circumstances. I haven't looked at this in a long time. Uh, Richard probably looked at it much more recently than me. Or he actually, Richard probably just remembers it better the first time he read it than <laughs> I did the third or fourth time I read it. But you know, the problem with the 14th and 15th Amendments, it's a very interesting historical tale, but the, um, the there weren't enough votes in the North to ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments. So what Congress, the radical Republicans in Congress did is they, they made the southern states promise to ratify these amendments 
as the price of readmission to the union, as the price of seating their senators and members of the House and Congress. And so then once those guys got there, they tried to take the ratification back. And that was held not to be legitimate. I think that is a one-time, almost like you know, one-time-only case governed by because of the unique circumstances of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And what do you do with these, you know, rebel states? But I would think normally a state should be able to ratify and then retract its ratification. Uh, in mean, fact, just to be clear, John, you mean retraction while the ratification process is still open, right? Oh yeah, once it gets to added done. to the Constitution, then you know it's done. But yeah, no, you're, you're yeah, exactly. While well, it's before it's actually been approved. Look, um, I have a view which is somewhat different from this. I think the first thing to understand is that people wanted to make the amendment process difficult, which is why they required multiple routes, all which needed some form of supermajority. I think also that there's something about to say that you would like, in fact, there to be a consensus at the time that the thing was adopted. And so therefore, when you decide to compress the period, making it long enough so that it's not an idle gesture, but short enough so that you actually have some binding, uh, that ought to be respected um, as the way in which it's going. So as to have, uh, you count the Virginia vote, which wasn't taken, uh, which is now made essentially 40 years later, and you ignore all the revocations that were done in the interim, is not the way in which you want to deal with major constitutional amendments. So I would say as of uh, the end of 1982 and the deadline, the whole thing is gone. If that is wrong for some reason, which I do not think it is, then it seems to me that you have to allow for the change in vote on the revocation side, as well as the decision to vote on the other side. I mean, suppose, for example, what had happened is that some state had actually flipped its vote from negative to positive. Um, are we going to say that that's impossible? I would certainly not want to make that point if you were within the particular period. It seems to me that what you need to show is, as of some date before that 1982 deadline, you have 38 states that are on board with respect to the amendment in order for it to count as a ratification and passage. But if you can't meet the temporal deadline, then I think that it's gone. This is part of the symbolic battle that we're well, going to have. A good analogy. Can I just throw in a good analogy? No, you could throw in a fabulous <laughs> analogy. Think about voting in the other branches. So uh, when you vote in Congress on the Hill, right, you have to vote by a certain time. And so members show up and they vote. They can always change their vote before the time is done. And then think about the Supreme Court. You know, they go to conference and they vote. But they can always change their vote, too, until the Before, issue yeah. happens all the time, right? Justice, Chief Justice um, um, Roberts flipped his vote on the Obamacare case after the conference. Usually in our system, your vote is, doesn't finally count until the deadline, and you can always change your mind. It's basically, yes, it's a deliberative process. Everybody changes their mind. And so if you don't know exactly how you do this for the Constitution, look at the way all corporate boards work, look at the way the Supreme Court works, look at the way the College of Cardinals starts to work, uh, look at the way in which uh, general organizations start to work. And I don't think any organization would say that you could tip the balance 46 years later on a moment which has been completely dormant. There's no further debate. There's no consideration. There are a lot of changed circumstances. It would be, I think, a travesty of justice to allow this particular thing to come forward. And indeed, it was precisely because of that mysterious provision and whatever it is, the 27th Amendment, uh, hanging fire for so long, that they decided with respect to the Equal Rights Amendment that they were going to put a time fuse in there. It was a negotiated part of the deal from both sides, and I don't think it should be undone after the fact, particularly many, many, many years later.
Well, one last little um, addendum to the story is that the most recent constitutional amendment, uh, the courts refused to review whether it actually had been amended. I mean, I'm sorry, had been added to the Constitution. And I, it was up to the executive branch to decide. And I even, I, something in me, I can't remember, and I remember reading about the time, I have this weird sense that there's some weird office in the government that actually decided it was added to the Constitution. Something like the, archiv- the, something like the archivist of the United States decided. Um, but he got the, he consulted <laughs> with the Justice Department, of course. But uh, I think it might be actually in the end up to the president at the time, not the courts. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you. It's too bad we didn't. We're ending on a limp note. <laughs> well, by the way, could you remind me just before we yeah, do this? Can you imagine sure. if it was Donald Trump who had to decide whether the Equal Rights Amendment votes <laughs> state <laughs> counted? Who won on baseball predictions? That's what I wanted to. Oh, no one. As with every year, Richard, everyone's a loser. That's oh, the way I that it so turned out. Better. No, nobody had nobody had the Washington Nationals. Oh. It's too bad that we didn't get to the faithless electors. So we'll do that on the next show. This is one of okay. those kind of arcane. But also, we should talk at some point about whether the existence of West Virginia is unconstitutional. That's a constant Twitter battle. All right, boys, it has been a pleasure as always. Thanks to both of you, our producer Scott Immergut, and to all of our great listeners as well as those of you who are just using us to help fall asleep on an airplane. Throw us a review at iTunes. It's worth it for the karmic equity you'll build. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.